Thanks for listening to this sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit us online at redemption.ca. Uh, it's good to get them together and to worship the King of Kings. Really excited to have Rick and Lucia with us uh, this week. Really want to encourage you to take advantage of them being here. Uh, we will have translators, you know, so you can understand, you know, kidding. The American accent, I gotta love it, right? So, um, we are gonna get right into the text uh, today. We're gonna be in Genesis 22, and, you know, um, this text, I, I, I still remember. I was like 11 years old, and my dad had come to faith about a year earlier, and we, you know, into different Christian movies and stuff like that, and there was a movie on this, on this scene. And I remember a relative was there with us and watched it, and he said at the end of it, he said, if that's who God is, I don't want anything to do with him. Uh, Dawkins, famous atheist, He says of this account, this disgraceful story is an example simultaneously of child abuse, bullying in two asymmetrical power relationships, and the first recorded use of the Nuremberg defense, which is, I was only obeying orders. Yet the legend is one of the great foundational myths of all three monotheistic religions. Uh, Dawkins obviously is a big fan of our text today, so... But I find a lot of people, especially unbelievers, they hear the text we're going to be studying today and, and they, they put themselves on the judgment seat and say, well, I wouldn't want to be, I want to, wouldn't want to follow a God like that. So what is the text? Well, we're going to be studying the story of Isaac and Abraham and the test that God brings to them. It challenges uh, believers to, uh, to a greater faith. It challenges us if we truly trust the Lord God, and it challenges us to examine how strong our faith is. Walke says this, this scene presents the radical nature of true faith, tremendous demands and incredible blessings. The crises of Abraham's faith in the promises and provisions of God will be no greater than in the testing of Abraham. And so it's with anticipation this morning that we're going to open God's word to Genesis 22. But before we do, let me pray for us. Lord God, we're so thankful for the scriptures. Lord, we're thankful that you wrote these things down. Not just to, to tell us of what's happened in the, in the past, how, um, Lord, you fulfilled your promise that you made in Genesis 3. But, Lord, it challenges us, Lord, to, to follow after an example like we see this morning. Lord, as the New Testament reminds us, these things were written so that we might be strengthened and encouraged in our faith as well. And so, God, bless with anticipation that we study today. God, I thank you so much that, Lord, you know every heart here today. You know those who are struggling in their faith. Lord, they're maybe having doubts. They're, they're, they're wondering if what you say is true. And so, God, I pray, Lord, would you, would you strengthen our faith through this text today? Would you help us to get our eyes firmly fixed upon you? And, Lord, know that you are good. Lord, use this preacher now for your glory, for your honor. It's your name we pray. 
Amen. Okay, so everybody needs a Bible. If you don't have one, just go ahead and slip up your hand. We're going to be looking at Genesis 22. So everybody turn there, Genesis 22. And we're also going to be looking at 1 Peter 1. So if you want to kind of simultaneously put you know, a finger in each spot, that would be good for this first point. We're going to spend a little bit of time uh, in 1 Peter because I think it's important as we think about this thing of testing. But I, I, I want to just kind of give us a heads up. Abraham isn't the only follower of God that is tested. If you are following Christ today, you also will be tested. And so how are we going to pass the test? Now, I've entitled this morning's sermon, Up for the Test? Question mark. So if we are to pass the tests that are coming, we need to be first confident in the character of God. We need to be confident in the character of God. We read in verse 1, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Right from the beginning, Moses, who's writing this, he wants us to understand this was a test. It's important to say that this is a test because in that time, Child sacrifice was common. God's, even the the moon God that Abraham had followed, there was child sacrifice involved. And what he wants us to understand, while Abraham doesn't know this yet, he wants us to know right from the beginning, this will be a test for Abraham. Does he truly love the Lord God above all else? Does he, does he, cling to the blessings? Does he cling to, 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 the, to the things that God has given him, or is he willing to freely give to God what is his? Everything that we have in this life, God has given to us. Do we believe that this morning? And do you have the kind of faith where you're willing to say, Lord, it's all laid down before you? This is what God will examine in Abraham's life and so I want you to just turn, if you're, if you're doubting whether tests are coming your way, I want you to turn now to 1 Peter 1, because I want to see that you also will be tested, and I also at the same time want us to think about why tests. Anybody here think, like, maybe, maybe not tests? Uh, I'm okay without tests, all right? Uh, uh, and maybe, maybe your back gets up a little bit when you hear that, man, like, you know, God's going to test us? What, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, let's look at 1 Peter 1 first. 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. Peter says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If necessary... Schreiner says this, the idea is that the sufferings believers experience are not the result of fate or impersonal forces of nature. They are the will of God for believers. When you have trials, testing come into your life, it is because God has allowed it. God has ordained it. The big things and the small things. And you probably need to hear that last part more than the first part, right? That the, the inconveniences that you have on a day-to-day basis, the Lord is allowing those things in your life, okay? Not just the big things. 
And so, how is it that we would respond? The trials that we face, they vary from person to person. There's times of grief, pain, stress. There are things that come into our life that are intensely painful and causes great grief. Death of loved ones, sickness, relational pain, persecution, and on and on the list goes. And Jesus told us that in this world we would have tribulation. But the Lord has told us that through that we would become more and more like him. Now again, if we're being honest, we would rather not have the trial, right? We would like the life of, you know, just life's the beach, right? And you just wake up and go lay on the sand and somebody brings you some food and like, wasn't that sound great? Like, that, like, that's the life I want, you know? 70, 80 years of that, that would be amazing. But what, what happens to faith in those kinds of situations? But my experience is, and I, again, I'm talking about generalities here. I'm not talking about every single person. But my general experience has been when I go overseas, I tend to see the faith of the believers there much stronger than the faith of believers in North America. It might be disappointing to you, but it's just the way it is. And the reason I believe that is, is because their faith has been tested over and over and over and over again. And in this world, and I I know we think we have it hard, but we really do have it very easy in so many ways. We don't have to continually be like, where's my food coming from today? Did anybody wake up and wonder and stress about that today? Like, I'm not sure. I'm not sure where the next meal's coming from. I don't know that anyone here is in that situation today. But in many places of the world, that's their story. And so they're continually being tested in their faith. Now, I think there's an important distinction here between temptation and testing. Youngblood, I think, says it really well. Satan tempts us to destroy us, but God tests us to strengthen us. What an important distinction. Satan tempts us to destroy us, but God tests us to strengthen us. And the times of of testing are to help us to see if our faith is real. Do we really believe what we say we believe? When things are going well and there's not much need for faith because you have what you want or there's no difficulties, then, then faith is kind of dormant in those moments. But when the trials come, that's when you see whether your faith is genuine. And Peter is confident on their behalf that they will see that their faith is genuine. He is confident that as they encounter various trials, they will see that they indeed have faith that is real. Warren Worsby says this, The trials of life test our faith to prove its sincerity. A faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. A person who abandons his or her faith when the going gets tough is only proving that he or she really had no faith at all. And how many people nowadays, you know, going through this time of COVID, and they're talking about, man, there's just so many people who have left the church. Like, they're not in the church anymore. What happened? They, you know, they, they started doing church at home, and then they never came back to the church. The kids are, are graduating from high school, going off to university, and, and what we're saying is they're losing their faith. But I think the biblical way that we should see this is that they actually never had faith in the first place. 
when the trials came, their faith was found wanting. Now, again, not for everyone. Sometimes people will go off the rails and they're, you know, they're walking in rebellion against God, but they're still God's child. God knows that. He alone knows that. But when you're, you, you treat them as an unbeliever in the sense that you feel like they need the gospel, and, and God at times is gracious and he pulls them back and they, they place their faith and trust once and again in him. But we also know people who, who sat in these, in these chairs who, who, who said they loved the Lord and they served in different areas, they, they no longer do so and they want nothing to do with God. Their faith has been tested and found wanting. But when the test is done and you have true faith, it results in this. It says that the, the one who passes the test, their, their faith is more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire. Peter is using this analogy of gold and how it's refined. Whilst is this, to form a useful object, raw gold must be cast into a mold. For that to occur, the solid ore must be melted, requiring a temperature of 1900 degrees Fahrenheit. When the gold is melted, the impurities rise to the surface, then they're skimmed off or burned off. A goldsmith knows the gold is ready to cast when the liquid gold becomes mirror-like and he can see his face reflected in the surface. Faith is more precious than gold, he says, because what? Gold is temporary, but your faith is eternal. The results are eternal. Abraham does not know it yet, but his faith is about be, to be tested by fire, and it will be found to be more precious than gold. And so now go back to Genesis 1. So the Lord calls out. He says, Abraham, and he says, here I am. Here I am. I found this interesting. This response is regularly used between persons related by intimacy or respect. Abraham is ready to hear the word of the Lord for him, right? Here I am, Lord. What is it that you have for me? He has no idea what he's about to say. Verse 2, God says, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, it's really interesting. If you've been with us for this whole time in our study of Genesis, you'll recall in Genesis 12, there's a very similar wording. You, you need to leave, leave your kindred, he says. Leave your father's house. There's this a stepping up, kindred, father's house, and then go to the land that I will show you. And now he's saying, I want you to take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the mountain where I will show you. There's like this, these bookends of faith for Abraham. What will he do? Now, it's, it's almost painful, right? You, but the, the way that the writer writes it, he wants you to understand this was not a small thing. It's his only son. Why? Well, if you were with us last week, his other son has been already sent away. Ishmael is no longer at home. He's, he's no longer with them. He is the only son left. He is the son of the promise. He is the son whom Abraham loves. And he's telling him, I want you to take him to Moriah. Uh, uh, scholars believe Jerusalem. And, and then the, the mount that they actually wind up on is where the temple mount was built. So kind of just fascinating. Again, just, you know, when you read this book, it's like there's one author. I don't know if you understand that. 
It all is put together. This is, is everything's put together. And he's saying, I want you to go there and I want, to, uh, you want you to offer your son as a burnt offering. This offering was where the, the whole, you know, always animals for the nation of Israel, the whole animal would be complete, completely consumed by fire. This is what he's asking his, uh, his, his servant Abraham to do. It had to be shocking. I mean, Abraham doesn't have the Torah, right? He's learning about Yahweh. He, he, he's followed him now, I, I'm guessing, anywhere between 35 and 40 years. We don't know the exact time as far as how old uh, Isaac is at this point. But, but it's been 35, 40 years of following the Lord, and the Lord has never brought anything up like this before. So how will... Abraham respond. Ross says this. This was a test to see how much Abraham would obey God's word. Would he cling to the boy now that he had him or would he surrender him to God? In other words, would he still obey God when it meant giving up the dearest possession he had? Did he truly believe that God would still keep his word and bless the world through the seed of Abraham? Was the promise still going to be true? Did he still fully trust in the word of the Lord. This was clearly the word of the Lord to him. How will he respond? And it says in verse 3, So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his men with him and his son Isaac. Abraham walks in obedience immediately. And how is he able to do this? How could he walk in obedience in this way? How, 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 how could he, 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 he take his son, his only son, and go to sacrifice him? And I believe the only way that he's able to go through this testing is because he has a firm understanding of who his God is. He doesn't trust in circumstances. He trusts in the Lord God, whom he's had this relationship with now. As I said, it's been maybe 35, 40 years since he's been following him, and he's sent his test every time he's been faithful. Great is his faithfulness. His love is steadfast. The Lord has never asked me to do something that was for my detriment. He fully trusts in him. And this morning, I, I don't know what you're going through right now. The testing that you're experiencing, the trial that you're going through, but I, I'm so thankful that the Lord knows exactly what it is, and He's asking you to trust Him through this time. He's saying, Look to me, walk in obedience to my word, everything that the Lord has called you to do. And most, and first and foremost, trust in Him, trust in His character. This morning, do you know Him? that he's all-powerful, that he's all-knowing, that his mercies are new every morning. What do you know of your God as you follow him? It's going to be so important for you in the testing that you will go through, if you were to go through and see that your faith is precious as gold, that you would know him and trust his character. Our life is like this. And if you're to survive this life, if you are to walk in faithfulness, you must trust his character. This is what I believe Abraham is doing. He's trusting the character of his God. Secondly, if we are to pass the tests that are coming, we need to be committed 
to the ways of God. We need to be committed to the ways of God. We've already seen. He, he's going to walk in obedience. Well, let's go back to verse 3. It says he rose early in the morning, didn't wait, right? He, he doesn't like, well, maybe we'll take off at noon, maybe tomorrow. No, he leaves early in the morning, saddles his donkey, takes two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac cuts the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. He's going to the area of Moriah. Now, why cut the wood? It's interesting. A lot of people have different theories. I have my own theory. I, I, I think he cuts the wood now because if he's like me, he doesn't want any excuses to stop him from being obedient to God. Like, oh, I, mean, I would walk in obedience, but there's no wood here. I guess I'll have to go on a few days' journey. And Do you still want me to do this? You know, like... Right? Like, do I still really have to walk in faithfulness in this way? Do I, right? I think he's, he's cutting it because he wants to be faithful to his Lord. But I think there's, there's some indication that his head is spinning. Because even the way this is written, he, he saddles his donkey first, then he goes and gets Isaac in service, and then he goes and cuts the wood. Normally, you'd go cut the wood, then you'd saddle the donkey, then you'd get the people, Right? So I think this is the indication here. His head is spinning, but he wants to be faithful to the Lord. Verse 4. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. The journey was about 80 kilometers long. We can only imagine the thoughts that Abraham had, the range of emotions that he went through as he's walking this three-day journey to get there. And then Abraham tells his servants to wait with the donkey. But why not take the donkey up? Well, I mean, they're going up a mountain, right? So it's steep, so the donkey's not going to work anymore. He tells his servants to stay. And then he says what? That, that he, he and Isaac would return after they worshipped. What do you think is going on here? He's like lying. He's like, I don't, I don't know. I can't go tell him I'm about to kill my son, so I'll just tell him this. Is that what's going on here? No, I think he's saying what he truly believes. In faith, he believes that after they worship there, they will return. Why do I believe that? Hebrews 11, 17, and 19, I encourage you to write it down for yourself and look it up for yourself later, but Hebrews 11, 17 to 19 gives us some insight as to what the mind of Abraham was. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. He doesn't know how the Lord is going to do it, but he believes that the Lord is faithful to his promises. And so even if he slays his son, he believes that he will raise him back to life and they will return after their time of worship. This is the faith of Abraham, his trust in the Lord God. We're not sure how old Isaac is as he goes up there. I, I oftentimes, I don't know why 10, 11 was always the thing I was always told. The... the, the, the term here for boy is the exact same term that was used for Ishmael in the last chapter. And at that point, he was about 16 years old. So he, you know, he's old enough to what? Carry firewood. We see this in verse 6. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. 
And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went, so they went both of them together. So he, he's got the wood on Isaac. He's, he's, a, he's a big enough lad to do it. He's not like a four-year-old or five-year-old or something. He's big enough to, and I think that's significant based on what we're going to see here. He, he's old enough to carry it on his own. They're going up together. Isaac has the stuff for the sacrifice, the knife and the fire. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. Like, I, I love the way this is written. Like, Moses is saying, did you see how much they loved each other? They, they loved each other so much. They trusted, Isaac trusted his father so much, and, and Isaac loved his son, or sorry, Abraham loved his son so much. And, and, he, and then he says, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? I, I, Dad, I don't understand. We got, we got the fuel, right? We got the knife, but where's the lamb? It's a legitimate question. Again, showing he's, there's some maturity here. And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Again, I believe this is a statement of faith. He, he believes that the Lord God will provide a lamb for a burnt offering. And they, so they continue on together. He doesn't know how it's going to work, but he trusts the Lord. I love what John Calvin says here. The example, this example is for our imitation. In such straits, the only remedy is to leave the event to God in order that he may open a way for us when there is none. We pay him the highest honor when in affairs of perplexity, we nevertheless entirely acquiesce to his providence. I don't know how this is going to work. I, 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 have you had those times in your life? Like, I, I have no idea. But Lord, I trust you. You've, I believe you've placed us here. We're in this time for a particular reason. And I believe, Lord, you will help us find the way that you want us to do. Uh, way to, sorry, the way that you want us to go. And so they, they come to the place of which God had told him. Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. I believe we see the faith of not just Abraham here, but Isaac as well. Why? I mean, Abraham is at least 110 years old at this point. Maybe 115. A 10 or a 15-year-old or a 16-year-old, however Isaac is, is, doesn't need to be like bound by his... It's not like Abraham was like, you know, got him down on the ground and he's, you know, tying him up and then he's putting him up... Like, he has to be trusting his father in this. It's the only way this can be explained. That, that he doesn't know exactly what's happening, but as the Abraham's trusting the heavenly father, he's trusting his earthly father and believing that God is going to provide somehow. That, that's what we're seeing here. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. I can't Can you imagine getting to that? Now it's been three days. You've been dreading this for three days. Lord, are, are you there? And, and, and he's got the knife down and he's about to plunge. That, that's how far he's ready to follow the Lord God. 
He's totally committed, totally devoted to the Lord. James talks about this in regards to an illustration of what real faith looks like. He says in chapter 2, verse 21 of James, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. He he didn't just say he believed in the Lord God. He didn't just say he trusted in the Lord God. He did everything that the Lord God called him to do. Walkie says this, true faith expresses itself in action that accords with God's word, both his promises and his commands. That's an important statement there at the end. His promises and his commands, right? He's like, yeah, 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 I believe his promises. Heaven, it's going to be amazing. I like salvation. But then you don't do his commands. That's not true faith. True faith is I follow him in his ways because I believe they are best because he is best. And I'm going to believe that his promises will be mine. So this morning, I want you to stop and think about, does God have your total devotion? Like 100% of you. That's what he deserves. That's what he calls you to have. Not, not 80%, you know, and then 20% me. Not 90%. That 90s are good marks, right? 90% and just 10. No, like 100% devotion. This is what he calls us to have for him. Are you committed to his ways? Are there some things in your life that you're holding on to? as precious, where you, you would even maybe even say it in a prayer, Lord, I'll do anything you want me to, but you never can take this away from me. That's an idol in your life when you would say that. Do you trust him fully that he always has what's best for you in store? Jesus made it really clear. You cannot love your wife more than me, you cannot love your husband more than me, you cannot love your child more than me. I have to have first place in your life. This is what the Lord calls his followers to do. Maybe it's your health, maybe it's your wealth. You may think about the rich young man. Hey, here's all you have to do just sell everything that you have and come follow me, and you will have riches in heaven. And that man goes away sad. Why? Because that for him was too much. It was too much devotion. I, I, I want to I wanna have, I want to be faithful. I, I want to, but like 100%, all in, that's really what God requires? That's really what God requires. May God help us to follow him as he deserves. Well, what happens? Lastly, if we are to pass the tests that are coming, we need to be certain about the provision of God. We need to be certain about the provision of God. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's the picture here, right? Like, stop. And, and Abraham's like, here I am. <laughs> okay, last time I said, here I am, that was not real great, what you told me to do. But I, I'm, I'm really hopeful, right? Here I am. What, what is it that you have for me, Lord? 
Ross says this, what God wanted from Abraham was actually for Abraham to sacrifice his own will, to surrender his will to God by giving up his dearest possession, and that is what had happened. And so now God intervenes. God intervenes. He says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham, I... I, I, I I, I, I've proven it out. I think as, you know, for those of us who are pretty confident in the omniscience of God, right? He knows everything. It wasn't like, whoa, like, I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know, Abraham. I didn't know if this was actually going to happen or not. It was just a little test. I, you, know, you surprised me. That's not what's going on here. It's t- it tested out. Now I have seen. There is the live, the real moment of these things taking place. God knows it. And now it is affirmed by his faith. He knows that he fears God. To fear God means to revere him as sovereign, to trust him implicitly, to obey him without question or protest. This morning, do we fear the Lord? Does that describe your following him, that you obey him without question or protest, that you revere him as sovereign? Abraham's like, or God says to Abraham, I know, I know you fear me. You, you, you were willing to give up your only son. Now the Lord provides just as Abraham said he would. Remember back in verse 5 and 8? We're going to come back here and worship together. The Lord's going to provide a lamb. Now he opens his eyes. It's like this instantaneous thing. Verse 13, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The, the first time in the scriptures where this is explicit, where we see substitutionary sacrifice happening. Instead of Isaac's life being taken, the life of the ram instead is taken. The ram in place of the son. I love here that Abraham doesn't try to seek any glory for himself here, right? He doesn't say, we will now call this place men of great faith. It's not what, right? Who gets the glory? God gets the glory. He says that this place will now be called the Lord will provide. He is the one who, who not only tests, but he also gives the provision. Now, there's a little bit of, of like debate. Okay, what, what is he talking about? The Lord will provide, as to this day on the mount it shall be provided. So, some see here the, the foreshadowing of the fact that the Israelites now will sacrifice in this same way. They, they, the Lord will provide a sacrifice, a substitutionary atonement for their sins. But I appreciate what, what Ross's thoughts are here. It's hard to be definitive, but I, I like what he's saying. Ross says this, Jesus said that Abraham saw this his day, Jesus' day, and rejoiced in it. That's in John 8, 56. This day may have been a reference to the coming of the Messiah to make the perfect sacrifice. It may be that at that moment at Mount Moriah, God allowed Abraham to see more of the divine plan than the text has put into words. Because that is ultimately what happens. There is is the ultimate substitutionary sacrifice, which is the Lamb of God in our place. 
Isaac is representative of you and I where we deserve death. And every one of us, there is a so-called symbolic knife hanging over every single person in their sin. But Jesus says, I will take their place. Instead of their death being, uh, sorry, instead of their sins being placed on them and them dying for their sins, I will place their sins upon myself and I will die in their place. This is what Christ has done. Just as Abraham was willing to give up his son, the Lord God, God the Father, has given us his son that we might have life. I pray everyone here this morning knows that to be true. That you have felt the weight of your sin. That you know that you deserve death. That you deserve hell. Eternal separation from God because of your sin. But that Jesus Christ has replaced you and has become your substitution. Is that true? I pray that's your story this morning. I love what it says in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If he, in other words, Paul's like, if he's loved you in that way where he's made you his own through Jesus Christ by him becoming a sacrifice for you, how much more so will he not give you all things? I mean, you can trust him 100%. Just as Abraham trusted God, you can trust him in the same way. The Lord who tests Abraham is also the God who provides. 100% of the time. Do you believe that? Like whatever testing you're going through, he also will provide the strength and help that you need in order that your faith might be shown as genuine. With the trial, you need to turn to him. You need to put your trust fully in him and then allow him to bring about the results that he wants. Throughout the last 35 plus years, God has assured Abraham of his covenant promises over and over again, right? Before he leaves the land of Ur, he's like, hey, I got a plan for you. Here's the covenant. And then we see that ceremony in Genesis 15 where the, he's, God's walking between the animals and there's other instances where he's assuring him of his covenant. Well, he does it one more time. We see this in verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice." I want us to note two things that are different in this particular covenant. That all the seeming things are being mentioned here, but this time he says, I swear by what? By myself. By myself I have sworn. Now the writer of Hebrews says this, for when God made, this is Hebrews 6, 13 and 14, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater By whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. Like, you want a sure promise from God? He says, here's how you know it'll come, because I'm swearing by myself, because there is no one greater. It is a guarantee that what I say, Abraham, 
is going to come to pass. You can trust me. And then the second thing here, and this is really interesting, all the other times the covenant promise was one-sided. God says, this is what I'm going to do. Because of my grace, because of my mercy, this is what I'm going to do for you. But here, he says, because you have been faithful, because you have been obedient and done what I asked you to do, now I will do all these things for you. Now, now there's, there is based on his obedience that he also will have these promises fulfilled. I think this is a lot like the new covenant. The new covenant that, that the Lord has made with you and I. I mean, let's be honest. He's done it all. He's done it all. Christ paid all of your debt 100%. The righteousness that you have is Christ. He's given you his spirit that you might walk in his ways. He's given you his word that you might grow in your knowledge of him. He's given you the body of Christ that you might spur one another on. And yet, he still requires you to be faithful. If there is no faith, then you're, then, or sorry, and there is no works, then your faith is dead. And so, It's just proven out that he truly is a child of God. And so it is for you and I. All that we have, everything that we we enjoy, we give him the praise and glory. And yet, if we are not careful, we can get into heresy, right? Well, he does it all. Let go and let God, you know, just kind of sit back. See what happens. No, Paul says in Colossians 2, like, we work hard, right? We, we work hard. And then verse 13, he says, because it is God who's working in you, right? So, so there is effort involved. There is intentionality involved. Your obedience matters. So to conclude, Abraham returns to his young men, just like he said he would. Isaac is with him. They arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. They just go home. That's the message here. And then we have this little bit, uh, these last five verses, that are really just there so that we can get to chapter 24. They are a preview of the provision that will be there Isaac for Isaac's provision of a wife. And so we just read that. Now, after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also bore children, born children to your brother Nahor, Uz, this, his firstborn, Buzz, his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, lots of children being born. Maybe you got some names here you want to use. Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, that's a good one. Did <laughs> laugh, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. That's the one thing you really want to check there. Father Rebekah, foreshadowing of the wife to come. These eight, Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother, moreover his concubine, whose name was Remya, Bor, Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Makkah. And so ends the chapter. It's going to be provision to come. But to conclude, I want you to just go back to 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1. I, I didn't highlight those last few words. Let's look at the end result one more time. After your faith is tested... 
it says that it will be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter moves us past the present to the future and awaits us, just as he has done here with Abraham. He has provided for Abraham in the present, and then he shows him the future. And so it is in this text. If you are to be found faithful in the present, then God wants you to show your future. And he says it will be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, what's incredible about this is it's not just talking about the Lord, that there will be praise and glory and honor to you for those of you who have walked in faithfulness to him. It says that the Lord will bring a, a reward of blessing. Later in, the, in this chapter, Peter talks about receiving an unfading crown of glory. And James in chapter 1, he says in verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. I'm praying this will be the story for every one of us here, that as your faith is tested, it will be shown to be genuine and that you have this anticipation that on the day when, when the Lord returns and we stand before him, that you, you will receive the crown of glory. And, and I think you will do what the elders did at that moment. You'll be like, it was not, and nothing to do with me. It had everything to do with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You know, it's like, it's like the three-year-old, right? I, I, I did it, right, Dad? I did it. And you're like, you know, the dad was like doing everything, right? But he did it. That that's look, that's looks like a lot like with us, right? Look, look, Lord, what we did. Now, should you, you need to do it? Yes, you need to do it. But he gets the glory. And so we close with this, Psalm 115, 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this time together in your word. Lord, we're challenged. Lord, as we see the faith of Abraham. But Lord, we also keep in mind, Lord, that you are the one who brought it about. You are the one who led him and guided him and, and got him to this point where his faith was this strong. And Lord, we're confident, Lord, as you lead us and guide us, as we look to you, Lord, we will find that our faith is strong. Again, not because of us, Lord, but because of your faithfulness, because of your, your goodness towards us. And so, Lord, would you, as, a, as we go through these times of testing in our lives, Lord, would you... Help us to keep our eyes upon you, Lord. Would you help us to put our trust fully in you? Lord, may your, your character be that which we cling to in the storms of life, knowing, Lord, that you are unchanging. Lord, knowing that you are always faithful, that you will bring about your promises, that your commands are good in our lives. Lord, if there are, 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 are people in here this morning who need to repent of doubt, who need to repent of, of maybe walking contrary to your commands, Lord, would you bring repentance in their life right now? Lord, would you be gracious? Lord, would you help them to turn to you? And Lord, we're just asking for that right now. Lord, we want to be faithful. Lord, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.